Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Jerry Lawler Show here on Podcast One. My name is Sean Reedy. Thanks so much for the download. You can follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Lawler Show. Please make sure to subscribe, and if you would be so kind as to leave a review, we would appreciate that as well. Uh, I am joined today, as always, by the King of Memphis and the host of Monday Night Raw, Jerry the King Lawler, and our guest today... Uh, another Memphis uh, product who has made his way to WWE for all of these years. We know him as Downtown Bruno or Harvey Whippleman. Uh, Bruno Lauer, how's everybody doing today? Well, of course, I'm doing great. Always great to be back here on the podcast. And uh, we're getting such great response from everybody out there. And you you mentioned you want everybody, to, of course, to uh, download and subscribe and all of that sort of thing. You know what I want everybody to do? I want, you, you mentioned the... Uh, Twitter, you know I'm a big Twitter guy, and uh, at Jerry Lawler, I want everybody that that downloads and listens to the uh, podcast. You got to send us a tweet. You got to put a tweet out there and tell us where you're listening and how you like it, and on and, and give us your response on Twitter, especially. Uh, and I, I will really appreciate that. And I'm excited today because uh, you're right. We already have him on the line and he's patiently waiting here. Uh, not not only a guy that's uh, Gosh, I, more more than a, more than a great friend of mine for all these years. And you mentioned that he started in Memphis and then made his way to the WWE. He was in WWE before I was in WWE. This guy is one of the longest tenured uh, superstars and and workers there in the WWE. And it's Bruno Lauer. Uh, I know him as Downtown Bruno. People from WWE know him as uh, know him as Harvey Whippleman. Bruno, how are you today, buddy? Well, you know what, I, I, I'm. I'm doing great. I'm here in beautiful Walls, Mississippi, and uh, it's 67 degrees right now. It's sunny, and last week I had a beanie on, a hoodie, and everything else. And, uh, you know, I'm in a good mood. I went to the, uh, a TV repairman friend of mine's wedding this weekend. Well, the wedding was boring, but the reception was fantastic. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Get, it? Get it, Sean? Or did that go over your head like this? I think I got it. I think I got it. So, the reception was fantastic. I love Bruno. Uh, this is the kind of conversations that I have with Bruno, not only over the phone, but all the time when we're in person. I, the first thing I want to get out of the way is because you never fail to mention it. Of course, Bruno came down to Memphis in the uh, the Memphis Territory. What year did you first show up here in, in uh, Memphis, Bruno? It was either 84 or 85 because I know you and me met in Hawaii, Hawaii in 83. But the thing of it, you know, we always refer to this as Memphis, the Memphis Territory. But Bruno is very proud of the fact that he does not live in Memphis. Once again, where where do you live, Bruno? Walls, Mississippi, the top northwest corner of DeSoto County. Yeah, it's about how how many miles is that from Memphis? Sixteen, twenty. Well, miles? not even. No, no, my gosh, no. It's uh, six miles from downtown Memphis, and really, Walls is on the oh. Memphis border. I could leave my house and walk and be across Memphis line. You know, within five minutes, it's right yeah. there. I mean, exactly. right on, I, I, on the border. Yeah, I, I was still thinking of Tunica, Mississippi, but you you are right, oh, right. right, right on on the uh, state line right there in Walls, Mississippi, and uh, beautiful Walls, Mississippi. It's Actually, though, if you blink your eyes, you miss it, right, if you're just driving through. Right. That's all going to change next year when I become mayor because I, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the intention of everybody in Walls, especially the fire chief, the chief of police, and, the, and most of the aldermen. I, they want me to be the mayor, so I'll, really? I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll stay mayor as long as it, until I get indicted. That'll be about it. <laughs> You'll probably have two terms as mayor. One as mayor and one term in prison, right? You know, I'm very educated. I went to Penn State. I mean the state Penn. But... <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> 
Well, listen, you are you are uh, actually from Pennsylvania originally, right? Yeah, I was born at uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia line almost 20 years ago. But, uh, you know, uh, but I've been in, in uh, Memphis area three quarters of my life, basically, you know, so right. this is well, the only home I really know. I want to let everybody out there realize how you went from, as as most people in Memphis know you, downtown Bruno, to being Harvey Whippleman, but that, that all came about after, long after you and I first met. Recall for me again, we met in Hawaii. I was going, I was flying down there working for uh, Leah Maivia, which was uh, The Rock's grandmother, and she was, right. she was running the territory down there. It was called, what was it, Polynesian Championship Wrestling, something like that? Yeah, Polynesian Pacific Championship Wrestling. Now, were you already working for her at that time? This was in the early 80s? Yeah, because Rocky Johnson, who's a really good friend of mine, booked me over there. I, I was working for, of course, you know him. I, I, I'm not sure if a lot of other people do. I worked for a guy named Bob Geigel sure. in Kansas City. And that's why I met Rocky Johnson. And he said, uh, man, why are you wasting your time over here refereeing and putting up the ring? You need to be managing. He brought me to Hawaii, and uh, I was managing over there some different guys. And you came over there, and I think it was 1983. You came over there, and you always like using managers, you know, in Memphis and wherever, which is right. good. And you you told uh, Rocky and Lars Anderson, you asked Lars and Rocky if I could manage you. And you worked with a guy named Superfly Tui, and I managed you, and uh, you told me how good I did and everything. And you told me uh, you could probably, you know, use me in Memphis. And then I started calling you 17 times a day for the next 17 years. I, I, I came back to Memphis, and I can't remember. I think I think Randy Hales was helping with the helping me in the office, which of course the office was like this little uh, one of those little houses that you have built into your backyard, usually to store lawnmowers and stuff in. I had one of those over on the to store Bruno in. Here in the store, that's what it finally wound up being. But we were using that as my my local office there in Memphis and behind my house. You started calling on a daily basis, and Randy <laughs> Randy would keep saying, "Oh my gosh, this uh, this Bruno, he just keeps calling. He wants to come in so bad." And I said, "We don't don't have a spot for him right now," and and he just kept calling. Your you kept calling, and finally, I'll never forget. I told Randy, I said, "Look, here's what get here's what we're going to do." I said, "I'm going to bring him in." And then, you know, we really don't have a spot for him, but I'm going to bring him in for a couple of weeks and then we'll just give him his notice. And at least then that'll stop him from calling all the time because we'll we'll have given him a shot. Right. So we call you. We gave you a date to come in. And how long did you stay? It was a little more than a couple of weeks. Right. Oh, my God. It's been uh, 35 years now, I guess. I mean, you know, the run lasted. The first, I had four different runs and the first run lasted over a year. And then. uh I went to different places and came back, you know, and always came back. And then finally, you know, I went left to Alabama. I went to Louisiana. I went back to Alabama, went to Knoxville, went to different places. And then when WWE called, I said, I ain't leaving no more. I'm staying here. And you fired me. You said, you mean WWE called you to go up there? And you said you'd rather stay here with Raymond and Chili Willie and put up the ring? I said, yeah. You said, well, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew, Bruno, that was the break of your life. I mean, are you kidding me to, to uh, go from Memphis and get a shot at WWE and be a, be a manager up there with, a, you know, all the talent? They had just, you know, they had just hit the uh, nationwide cable TV and everything. And you said when they called you, who, who was it that actually who, who was it that put the word in and wanted you to come up there? And who actually made the call to you the first time to offer you to come up to give Sid credit? You know, Sid's the one that recommended me to the. The office, and I'll never forget that. But now, Howard Finkel was actually the one that called me. Oh, okay, okay. 
And then and and you at first told him no, right? Well, no, here's this, here's, what, here's the funny part of that. I was in Kell City, Indiana, selling tickets. I had to, I then put up the ring. I bought Chili Willie and Raymond or whoever with me to put up the ring. And bear in mind, this is 1988 or 89. There was no cell phones. I was up there after we put up the ring. I would sit and sell tickets until Eddie Marlin would get there. And I was sitting in the little box office uh, there. The phone would ring. People would call up. Hey, what time's the match starter? How much is tickets? Is, is Jerry Lawler there tonight? You know, whatever. The phone rang at one time. And then, Hello, this is Howard Finkel from the World Wrestling Federation. You know how he talks real <laughs> dramatic, you know. So I thought it was Dirty White Boy if somebody messed with me, so I hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and, then he, and there was no caller ID or nothing back then either. So I didn't right. know that he called back. I, I really need to speak to Bruno Lauer. This is Howard Finkel. Uh, we're interested in Britain and uh, whatever. And I said, yeah, okay, well, I'm too busy. I, I, I'm put, I got to take the ring down. Blah, blah, blah. And then he, he called back again, and he says, if you don't believe me, I'll give you the number. You can call. And it was a 203 <laughs> number, and it was, and I called back up there, and it was showing up. It was a WWF. You had the time, F, you know, right. E, whatever. And, and, and they wanted me to go to Worcester, Massachusetts for a tryout. I had never been that far north in my life. Because you look <laughs> on the map, Pittsburgh and West Virginia is right on the border, but that's way up there. And I didn't know nothing. Anyway, Lawler gave me a haircut. If you remember, I stood right in your, on Walnut Grove, I stood up in your uh, upstairs, the little office you had up there. Right. A little art studio, whatever, you know, and, and, and you put a sheet down, you cut my hair, because my hair was all nappy and everything, and you stood right there and cut my hair. And I told you at that well, time, Bruno, I said, Bruno, you you've got to go and take this opportunity, and and if and if you want to stay here that bad, I'm going to have to fire you to make sure that you go, and that's and that's really basically sort of what happened. What's this? Exactly what happened. And then I says, yeah, but what if I get up there and, and you know they don't care for my work and they, they send me back? You told me I could put in an application. <laughs> <laughs> you could start you could start calling again seventeen times a day or something, but but no. Uh, yeah, but, <laughs> and that was, and of course, you you went up, you you showed up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Who was the first person you met up there? First person I met. Let me think. Well, I, I mean, walked you, in with you, uh, you walked in. Yeah, you walked in as Bruno Lauer and or downtown Bruno. And who did you, did right. you look for? Howard Finkel or who were you looking for? Uh, well, I was. I, I never really looked for anybody. Sid and I flew up together. You know, because he lives oh, in Memphis too, so we were on the same flight. Oh, okay. And we went in. Of course, I knew eighty percent of the guys at that point. I've been in the business ten, eleven years, so. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of guys I hadn't seen in a while. Percy Pringle and Shawn Michaels and uh, Strongbow, who I knew. I worked with, actually worked with Chief in Kansas City. A lot of guys. And then, uh, of course, I met Hogan. Uh, that's the first time I met him, but he was, he knew who I was right away. He says, downtown Bruno. I've watched you give the king a hard time for a lot of years there in Memphis. Welcome aboard. I hadn't even signed up yet or signed yeah. you know, contract yet, <laughs> but, but he was just real friendly and nice. He says, I, hey, I'd love to see you come in downtown, Bruno. And, uh, you know, it was good. Then I met Vince. And, uh, so they, Vince they, said, they, I they, you on the first day you met Vince McMahon? Oh, yeah. He was very friendly. And he says, what he wants me to do is go out there and show him something that he's never seen before. I says, you know, he didn't tell me, you know, lay it out. Here's what you say. He's go out there and do an interview with Oakland and, and show me something that uh, I've never seen before. So I went out there and zipped my pants and ran around naked. And all these- <laughs> Tired. <laughs> oh my God! No, I went out there, and uh, like Lawler said, I was uh, born in Pennsylvania, West Virginia border, but I've been here my whole life practically. And I guess convincing them I sounded Southern, he goes, "Well, you got a Southern accent." He goes, "Play off of it." And I said, "Okay." So 
Oakland said something like, well, up here in Massachusetts, we don't care for you people from Mississippi. <laughs> I just reached back and slapped the shit out of him. You know, Vince said, really? do something I, you know, i never seen before. I swear to God, that's what I did. So oh, got the guy, I, I, was I, I didn't know that. You slapped Gene Oakland on your first interview? <laughs> yeah. And we got in the back. Everybody was just real silent. And Vince called me off to the side. And he said, that, great interview. But I didn't like the slap. I said, oh, God, here we go. I'm call I'm going home. And Vince says, you know, he said that out loud so I could hear it, Gorilla Monsoon and everybody. And Vince called me to the side. Now, bear in mind, it's the first day I ever met him. He goes, right, right. What, he, goes, he goes, when Oakland comes back, I'm going to yell at you for slapping him. He goes, we're going to do the same thing tomorrow night in Portland, Maine. I want you to do it again. I didn't like the slap. You didn't lay it in enough. So, oh. <laughs> you didn't hit him hard enough, right? <laughs> right. So we went up to, to uh, Portland, Maine, and, and uh, I did the same thing the next night, and nobody said nothing. I didn't, you probably don't even remember this, but my home was XXXX Walnut Grove Road at the time, you know. Right, cause, sure. So uh, I got back from out of town, and you said, you know, how did it go, this, that, and the other. I said, I don't know. You said, well, there's a FedEx here from WWF. Maybe you ought to open it up. <laughs> if I use your address, to, you know, for my address, because I didn't want Buddy Wayne having my information. And right. It was a damn uh, three-year contract. Wow. 1989, and here it is, 2019, almost 2020. I've been been there almost 31 years. Working every single week, every single week up there, right? Yeah, every week. I miss very few, like when I had surgery or when I went to the penitentiary or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Stick around. We've got more to come on The Jerry Lawler Show. An autopsy not only reveals how a person died, but how they lived. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter. If you like what you're hearing, check out more dark mysteries on your TV on Reels channel. There are shocking real-life and death stories in world's most evil killers, like the quiet neighbor nicknamed the Scorpion after he bludgeoned nine women to death with a hammer, and Rodney Alcala, the serial murderer best known as the dating game killer. Then check out the latest episodes of Autopsy that reveal what really killed screen and music legends like Walt Disney, Tom Petty, David Cassidy, and Batman's Adam West. You can find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. Welcome back to The Jerry Lawler Show. Let's go back. Sean, I know you, Sean is, you know, he's chomping at the bit to ask you some Memphis questions and we want to, let's, let's go in the, in the right order. So when you first, when you first, let's go back to when you first came back to Memphis or when you first came up from Memphis after I, you called 17 times a day and I, I brought you in, what did we do with you right off the bat in Memphis? My first match, you know, man, is Tony Falk, boy, Tony against Tracy Smothers. You know, the finish was Calhoun took it. A bump, and I came in the ring and stomped uh, Tracy Smothers on the head while uh, he had Tony Falk covered. And I jumped over the top rope from the ring to the floor, you know, revived Calhoun with my, with, you know, my magical powers, and then he counted Tracy out, you know, because Tone was laying there like he was dead. I mean, I was, I thought we were going to have to call a priest to come give him the last rites. Right. But well, you I know, Calhoun was famous. He would always get knocked down by a phone call. Anything would knock Calhoun down. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I jumped over the top rope. From the ring to the floor, which I couldn't do that now. If you gave me $10 million, I'd kill myself. But back then, I could do it easy. But 
I always said to myself, if I would have caught my foot on that top rope on my first day in and fell to the floor like a jerk off, that would have been it for me. But not really, probably not really. I would have thought that you did it on purpose, and I would have been like Vince. That was great. That was great. <laughs> but go ahead. Right. <laughs> so that was it, and uh, and uh, it, the match came off real good. And I made the interview, you know, afterwards, and uh, we went to Forest City that night. And uh, Tony totally Falk against you in the main event, coming off, you know, a little heat. Me and Tony got on smothers that morning. And then, uh, you know, we went from there. I don't forget my first night in Louisville. Tommy Rich was there. I guess I was eating a hot dog or something. I got mustard all over my shirt. And I didn't realize it. And we were back there in the back, and I didn't notice it. And you said, Bruno, you got mustard all over your shirt. You're going to go to the ring. And I was like, oh, God, I was thinking about, I better go get another shirt. I better clean it off. Tommy Rich looked over at you and said, you know, Jerry, Bruno told me he just don't give a shit. <laughs> were you booking when uh bruno was like all over tv because he he had tons of screen time with uh goliath and bubba and lord humongous uh he was all over the tv with lance bugging poor lance russell i think we've said this many times that the the book jerry jarrett and i you know own the company together and we we would trade off times to book and we and we sort of set this in stone. He would book for six months, and then when the day came, you know, we would set six months from the time he started. When that day came, no matter what talent he was using or what uh, program was going on, boom, all of a sudden I would take over the book that day, and then I would book for six months. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of times he didn't like the talent that I was using or, or I didn't like the talent that he was using, and, and a lot of the guys realized, man, at the six-month mark, some things are going to change. You know, and so, uh, but Bruno was a constant. Bruno, everybody loved Bruno. Jerry booked him. I booked him. And like you said, he's been there for 35 years. And Bruno, you would, I mean, you, you worked well with, with no matter who was booking, right? Oh, yeah. Except for one big exception, Eric Effin Embry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was, yeah, I'd love working with Later on when he came in, we let him try to book one time. Yeah, I mean, oh, my God, he booked us from the Coliseum to the Pipkin building. If we'd have kept on with him, we would have been wrestling in somebody's backyard. I mean, he was just, oh, my God, I forgot more about the business this morning than he ever knew. And he thought he was a big booker. There's a guy that was in the ring, and I'm referee, and he's the booker. And Jeff Jarrett says, okay, tell Eric Embry to do the test of strength. You know, Eric was the bad guy. You know, you know, the test of strength, you put your hand up. You play mercy, whatever. Right. So Jeff says, tell, tell Embry to do the test of strength. I said, Embry, do the test of strength. And he goes, what's that? I said, hey, Jeff. I said it loud. I didn't just shit it. I said, hey, Jeff, our booker don't know what the test of strength is. <laughs> you know, I want to throw you, a story here. I was texting with Randy Hales this morning, and I asked if there's any special stories I should ask Bruno about. And he said, ask him about Eric Embry. So Randy <laughs> Hales started to sabotage me, apparently. Oh, no. Randy wanted me to buy him. He, he was a, Eric Embry was a piece of crap. What exactly did, did Eric Embry do? To really tick you off from the very uh, the very first time you met him. When he first came in, is it going to be the booker? The very first day he came in, he he says, yeah. "I'm telling you right now, <laughs> this is going to be my territory, and all you Lawler guys, you're out of luck. And I'm going to tell you what: if I find out you want, you go to Lawler and tell him anything I said. You're done that day. And now Jamie Dundee is going to be managing all the talent. You're not going to be managing nobody. So really, you really need to find a place to go." Because I'm not going to book you. You or none of these other Lawler guys. And he goes, 
and I'll let you finish up right. So he had Miss Texas beat the shit out of me and get color on me <laughs> at the Pipkin building. The next week, he had dirty white girl who, who was skinny and tiny and frail, pretty girl, had her beating the shit out of Miss Texas. So what happened was Eric Henry wasn't going to use me. So Eddie Marlin and Little Man got together and put me in charge of the rings and made me a referee. So I said, Eric Henry had nothing to do with that. I was refereeing every town, every spot show, everywhere I wanted to be, I refereed. Frank Morell didn't like that. That messed up Frank because he was, even though he was the worst referee in the history of the business, he made Bronco Lubas look like Tommy Young. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I refereed and I was in charge of the rings and Eric Embry couldn't touch me. Other than Calhoun, you were always my favorite referee. We're going to have to, in a minute or two, get to the famous referee story that we did up in, um, Ripley, Tennessee. Oh. Ripley, wasn't it? Ripley, Tennessee. Oh, why don't we tell it now? It's great. Okay. All right. Let me let me set it up, and then I'll let you tell the, the punchline to it. What what was it? Jeff Jeff Gaylord was wrestling for. Yeah. Now Jeff Jeff was a really. I mean, you know, I, I, we we all like Jeff, but he he went astray. He wasn't always the sharpest knife in the door at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think we both. We we were talking about the other day, Bruno. I believe that Jeff Gaylord is maybe still in prison today, right? Right. right. That's, yeah, he robbed banks. Yeah, he robbed a after he got out of the wrestling business. He went in and robbed a bank, uh, and and this is the truth. He robbed a bank. He slid the he slid a piece of paper under the to the teller that said, you know, put all the money in the this bag or whatever and everything. And then he got the money and he took off. The teller when the police got there. The teller showed him the note that he gave him, and they turned the piece of paper over, and it was on a piece of his stationery. Oh, my and gosh. <laughs> his name and address on the back of the note. This is the this is honest-to-goodness truth. And, of course, so— the, It is. Uh, yeah, so anyway, he's, he became a guest of the government <laughs> in a gated community. Uh, so right. He's, and he's still there. But anyway, before— Hey, King, that, let, me say, let me say one thing. Can I say one thing? Sure. Okay, about what you just said, it's all true. But the, when they when they went to his house to get him, that stationary pad that he wrote that note on was on the table, and you could see the indentation on the top sheet where he wrote that note. And the, right. the cops, you know, they just took a pencil and brushed over it, and you could see that, you know what I mean? <laughs> so he right. couldn't even say somebody else wrote the note on his stationery. Right. So anyway, uh, but before that happened, when he was really working, when he was working for us, we got this idea. I, I, different different ideas would come to me for different reasons. Somebody gave me or I bought somewhere this really cool, uh, like a leather cowboy jacket, and it had the fringe. You know, this like the it was a, like a rust colored, like a leather, almost like a suede leather cowboy jacket. It had those uh, what do they call those things? The tassels or the fringe coming off of the yeah, sleeve the fringe, yeah, the front, yeah. And so anyway. I just I love that jacket, but it was actually too big for me. So I told I gave the jacket to Jeff Gaylord. I, I loaned it to him, but of course it it like that bank money it wound up disappearing at the end. But anyway, I loaned this jacket to Jeff Gaylord, and we we gave him a cowboy gimmick, or he was the the masked out. No, wait, what a mask! He would wear the like the the Texas uh, Ranger, Texas Ranger, Texas Ranger, yeah. So he would wear a cowboy hat and this jacket to the ring. And uh, uh, and then he would put the he would put the uh, 
like the bandana up around his face, you know, like the old bank robbers would do back in the day. You know, that's probably what set him off on the wrong track now that oh, I yeah. was just... <laughs> You have him go out to the ring dressed like an old old uh, old West bank robber. But anyway, so we're wrestling one night. I'm wrestling him one night up in Ripley, Tennessee, just a little small town, but they had a good good crowd there. And of course, we come in the ring. And of course, the referee's job at that time, you know, he would he would bring those both the wrestlers. They don't even do this anymore, I don't think. But he would bring the wrestlers together in the center of the ring. First, he would, you know, he would patch it down like they do at the airport now, just to see, make sure you didn't have any chains hidden or any kind of a foreign object hidden on your in your tights or anything. He'd give you the pat down. Then they call you together and say, all right, we're going to want a clean match here. No hair pulling, no eye gouging, no punching with a closed fist and all this stuff. And then, then you'd go back to your corner. He'd ring the bell. The match would start. So you take it from there. Here, here, here we come into the ring, Bruno, and you, you call us together. And he's dressed like the Texas outlaw, and I got my wrestling gear on. And so what happened there? Okay, so I, I pat Waller down to had his boots down, his tights, and uh, open up his fist, make sure there's nothing in there, blah, blah, blah. I turn around to Gang Lord, Texas Ranger, and do the same thing. I looked over at Mr. Coffee and said, okay, ring the bell. So Gang Lord took off that big jacket while we were just telling you about it. <laughs> he had two six guns and two bandoleros with about 200 bullets. <laughs> 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 and two six guns, really real guns, around his waist, underneath that jacket, right? Yeah. So, so uh, Lalo says, "Well, I guess finding a chain would be out of the question." <laughs> I look over to this guy after Bruno pets him down, looking for a chain or whatever. He takes the jacket off. He's got a two. Real guns around his waist, and like you said, about 200 bullets. And when I said, I guess finding a chain would have been out of the question, and Bruno started laughing. That just something about that guy, it just got away with Bruno. He started laughing, and I started laughing, and we laughed all the way throughout that match, didn't we? The whole match. Then we got in the back, and Buddy Wayne, that was his town. He come in the back. We're all laughing. Buddy Wayne comes in. Bruno, you're going to kill the town out there laughing. What's wrong with you laughing? Blah, 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 blah. And I go, I said, well, why the hell aren't you yelling at Lawler? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. We, we, had, we had some great matches. But then when did when did all the stuff happen where you were wrestling? And, like, you wrestled Stacy and, and uh, all of that sort of stuff. When when Was that before you started the refereeing? You were still managing? Or what was that? No, that was after. That was after. Oh. I, I wrestled, I wrestled uh, some. Uh, before I started refereeing, that was actually, I already worked for WWE at the time because, um, you know, once they started, you know, the mutual, uh, agreement with, with Memphis, you know, then I was allowed to work at home all I wanted. So then I came back and that's when I would wrestle Stacy and different ones. And, uh, cause, you know, like I said, WWE allowed it and I, right. I loved it when I was, had off days at home. I could come home and, you know, work to different towns and everything. And, uh, and when I was still able, I couldn't work now. I'm too, I'm too just, I'm just too tired and beat up. I can't do it no more. You and, uh, Howard Finkel had a tuxedo match, I think, on like an anniversary episode of Raw, right? Yeah, you know what? That's great because uh, I'll tell you why. That tuxedo match made the match with me and Stacy not the worst match in the history of Monday Night Raw. <laughs> Well, you know, so, uh, you became, you became, uh, tell us about how, how did the thing with Harvina come about? You were, you were, of course, Harvey Whippleman. And, and you got to go back and tell us, there's so much stuff we need to ask you. How did the name Harvey Whippleman come up? And then later on, you became Harvina and you won the, you won the women's championship, didn't you? 
Well, here's the deal. I, I had wrestled Stacy umpteen times here in USWA. Right. Power Pro, whatever it was at the time. And we had decent matches. I mean, it wasn't Shawn Michaels against Bret Hart, but it was, you know, it was pretty good matches. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess you had told somebody about it. So by the time it went through the ringer, instead of just having a regular match like we did in Memphis and or surrounding area, which would have been a decent good match, they decided to put us in a, in a uh, kiddie swimming pool full of real snow that they went outside and got it. Had me dressed like a woman and just instead of having it in the ring, so it was a horrible, terrible match. There was no way to do it. But we, but they, that, that's what they had us do, so it was just awful. That was that on that. That's how that came about. And then, doing then, it the way is we that did. where they called you Harvina or something, or what was that? Yeah, that's it. We're going to call you Harvina. And then uh, after the match is over, you're going to expose yourself to who you are. And, and then I wrestled Miss Texas the next night, and then she beat me uh-huh. quick. Well, basically what it was, they wanted to take the belt from Stacy and put it on Jackie. But right. they knew that Jackie was real stiff and everything. And Stacy was, you know, she was there for because she was very pretty. She wasn't there for being a, you know, stout girl like Natalie Neidhart or somebody. So they basically just put it on me for one day so Jackie can beat me and not, you know, black Stacy's eye or something. That's pretty much why they did it. <laughs> right. A different yeah. time for the women's you know, division I, than nowadays. Once again, how did the name Harvey Whippleman come about? Well, because Bruno's my real name. I was born Bruno. It's on my birth certificate. That's me. Right. And WWEF, whatever, wants to copyright, you know, your name. Oh, okay. So, Gorilla Monsoon and uh, Gene Oakland came up with Harvey Whipple. And then when I went to the ring that day for that interview I was telling you all about with, with Oakland, Oakland called me Harvey Whipple Man. He just threw that man at the end, which I don't give a damn. And then I just stuck. Now the only one to call me that now is Mark Carano. Hey, Harvey. Hey, Harvey. Hey, Harvey. Oh, my God. I think he does. You, you hate that now, don't you? I really do. Honest to God, I can tell you this. The greatest memories I had in the business, none of them, none of them, zero, have anything to do with a paycheck. You know, as far as, oh, my God, a big payday or something I did in the ring or at ringside. Most fun I had was stuff like well, what Lawler and me were just talking about with the Gaylord thing. I mean, yeah, that was in the ring. But, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, it was the best match ever and the people were electric. No, it was like something like that. That was fun. Or, okay, there was a girl, she's dead now, but her name was Emily Arthur. Lawler and them had me wrestling her. She was like a friend of Jerry Bryant. And they wised her up to the business and taught her very little about how to work and had me have matches with her. And anyway, we went all around, me and her working together. So we was in, in uh, Lively, Arkansas one night in 86, I think it was. And she put both of her shoulders, I mean, her knees and my shoulders and pinned me. I was supposed to go over. We got in the back and everybody ripped me. Oh my God, you let that girl beat you. I can't believe it. So we, we got to Nashville the next night. And Eddie Marlon and them had my head all gassed up. Said, now, look, she beat you when she wasn't supposed to. So you get out there tonight, and you just shoot on her, and you just pin her, and you beat her in the middle of the ring. Calhoun was up there refereeing that night. So they had my head all gassed up. I'm out there fired up and everything. We're going on for about five, ten minutes. Calhoun said, I thought you was going to beat her. I said, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so you were shooting you around to beat her, and you couldn't? <laughs> Right, she was just too stout for me. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't beat. I tried, I tried like a son of a bitch. I said another thing that happened one time. <laughs> one of my favorite guys I ever managed was Hickerson. I loved Hickerson. So we had a deal where I had a loaded boot, you know, my cowboy boot. I would take it off and I would bang it on the ground like three times. It would send, you know what I mean, send like a weight to the heel or whatever, right. and knock people out with it. You know, we did that every night. You know, we beat Lawler with it. We beat Jeff Jarrett with it. We beat, 
just a lot of people, Billy Travis, whatever. So we was in Nashville one night, and there was a guy at Dundee train. They called him Nature's Best. Just a little generic-looking guy with the bicycle shorts and the, you know, whatever. Just a, you know, generic baby face. So they put him in the opening match with Hickerson. The main event that night was uh, Hickerson against somebody. I don't remember. It might have even been Lawler. I don't remember. They said, okay, Phil, this is his kid's first match. This is his hometown. You know, make him look a little bit good. And when it's time to go home, we'll do whatever. And Bruno will load the boot and crack the kid in the head with it. So this is the kid's first match. And Phil's the champion. Yet we're still needing me to screw the kid. You know, so it makes the kid, to me, look great, you know. So... I caught the kid with the boot when it's time to go home. He wouldn't sell. He came out of the ring, came towards me. He goes, <laughs> not my home, not my hometown, not my hometown. I couldn't believe it. He was, I took that boot. I hit him so hard in the, right in his ear, as hard as I could. And literally, no kidding. You see Hickerson, he'll tell you, I knocked him out. Cause I guess I hit, knocked his equilibrium, knocked right. him out. And he laid there on the ground and he got counted out. I tried to kill him. Jerry Jarrett came over to the hillside and, and uh, there in Nashville. Dundee was screaming and raising hell because it was one of his trainees. And Jerry Jarrett says, Bruno, we don't do business like that. I can't believe you did that. You could have killed that kid. He's green as a gourd. Why did you do that? I said, little man, we have beat Waller with that with that boot. We have beat Billy Travis with that boot. We beat, beat Dundee with that boot. And he's real mad. I said, we beat your son with that boot. And he goes, well, yeah, I guess you did the right thing. <laughs> He had to throw it Jeff before it went before it sunk into him though, didn't it? Right. Because I mean this kid was trying to kill me and Harrison's gimmick. So they said that was that was his first match and his last match. And I, I felt a little bit better. They said he had to get surgery on his ear and he, he was deaf in that ear after that or whatever. That's what they said. But I'll never forget this. A good friend of mine, Iceman Parsons, one day we were in Louisiana together and I was telling him the story. I said, I kinda of feel bad, you know what I did. And Iceman said, Bruno don't you dare feel bad. Every single day when that guy wakes up and puts his hearing aid in, he looks in the mirror and says, I should have never put that little son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> now, listen, I mean, that's so you were managing Phil Hickerson at that time, and I can't tell you how many matches that I had with you, with you managing my opponent and everything. Jeff Gaylord was just one of them, but, I mean, you managed everybody. But uh, up in the WWE, who, who were some of the people that you managed? You started out with Sid, right? No, I started out with Big Bully Busemick. Oh. He's dead now. And then Warlord, because Sid was a babyface. When Sid, Sid switched heel, then I managed Sid. Then I managed Well Done, and I managed uh, Mr. Hughes. I managed Quang. I managed Adam Bomb. Giant Gonzalez. I managed Bertha Faye. Remember Adam Bomb? I don't got, know if we, yeah. He got there. Sure I do. And they gave him that, that crazy name, Adam Bomb. He thought, man, I, this is great. I'm going to be the next Hulk Hogan and everything. He went out like, like one week later and he had a huge tattoo. Got, he had a huge tattoo of an Adam Bomb going off on his, uh, <laughs> On his on his bicep, right? He just you, right. And remember, you, me and I talking and going, does he not realize that he's not going to be Adam Bomb for like probably two months up here? And then after that, that that tattoo is going to be on his arm the rest of his life. Right, right, right. Oh. <laughs> Any giant Gonzalez stories? John Gonzalez, is, you know, he was very. Oh, I loved him. I, he was a great guy. I, I loved him, but he was like it was like traveling with a little kid, an eight foot tall child. You know, but he was a great guy. He wasn't a dick or an ass or nothing. He was a great guy, but he was very high maintenance. And he didn't like it when people people bothered him. Remember, we went to the restaurant one day. And he goes, Bruno, listen, I don't want people to bother me. When we go in, please do not tell people I am giant. 
He's an eight-foot-tall guy with a head the size of a gasoline can. And I, I guess he figures they wouldn't know he was a giant if I didn't tell nobody. <laughs> and, of course, I traveled with Steve Lombardi, Brooklyn Brawler, who's probably my best friend in the business besides Lawler. We traveled together for 25 years. So we have had a lot of fun. I, you, you ought to get him on your cast one day. He can tell you some good stories, too. Oh, my gosh, yes. Those guys were legends up in the WWE. When I got up there, you'd hear stories about uh, Brooklyn Brawler or Steve Lombardi. or Heck, he, he did everything. He was Doink the Clown. He was uh, whatever, the beekeeper guy for Kamala, everything. But you right. had traveled together every single time on the road, didn't you? Yeah, every for years and years and years. We Steve left for other opportunities, and I'm still there. But we were the longest people there. That never left. I never left. The stories with you and Steve Lombardi were classic. I mean, I don't know if they were true, but I mean, you know, this was stories about you guys were notorious for trashing rental cars. Everything, everything would just go in the back seat, right? Go over your guy's shoulders. And no matter what right. you're eating or what, you just throws everything in the back of a rental car and, uh, and then turn it in at the end of the couple of days that, that way. There were stories about you guys. If you stayed in, if you stayed in a hotel, like you guys would, uh, when you got ready to leave the next morning, you got to do something to the air conditioner and then go in and say, tell the, tell the, the, the bellhop or the desk bell person at the desk, uh, like, hey, our air conditioner wasn't working. We're not going to pay for that room or something like that. And they'd go down. Sure enough, the air conditioner wasn't working. You guys had gimmicked it up or something. Or you guys were famous for a, what we call healing, healing a bill, right? Uh, I don't recall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall that we have a free bird at anything. <laughs> you guys would never put hair. You guys would never pull a couple of hairs out of your head and put them into food at the end of the meal, would you? I don't recall. <laughs> okay. Stories <laughs> about Bruno and Steve uh, Steve Lombardi are classic, man. That was that was awesome. Uh, you oh, we had a blast. And, uh... You sent me a couple of pictures, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet them out after the after the podcast drops of some then and now pictures of guys that you've managed or were with up in the WWE, right? Who were those? Who were those? Well, that was me and Sika, uh, the Samoan. We were in Louisiana together, you know, 30-something years ago, and that was just the other day at the autograph thing. Then me and Big Bubba, who people might remember him as Tugboat from uh, when he was in WWF, but in Memphis, he was Big Bubba, so got to see him. And uh, yeah, it was nice. It was good. No, you're, yeah, you're in Walls, Mississippi now. What's your what's your schedule like when you get home? You go Monday. Yeah, this is this is different now. For for years and years and years, you would leave out on Monday or, or Sunday night, and you would go right. to the city we were in. You would work Monday, and then you would stay over for Tuesday because I always did Tuesday. This was SmackDown, and then you would come back to Walls, Mississippi. But now, what's what's your schedule like now that SmackDown's on Friday? Well, I'll leave Thursday and go wherever the Friday town is, and then depending on where the Monday town is. I'll either have to stay on the road for a day or two, or if it's somewhere different, I'll come home for a day and a half and go to the next town. Sometimes I don't go to SmackDown. It all depends what we work out on the schedule. So right now it's up in the air. I don't think nothing's in the sound yet. It was easier on you personally when it was Monday and oh, Tuesday back then. Yeah. Right. So now I'm standing in front of the Golden Corral in Horn Lake, Mississippi, where I come every morning. But now I'm fixing to walk inside because a church bus just pulled up. If I don't get inside now, I'm going to be behind all these church people. And yeah. then I'm not going to be able to get my, <laughs> get my stuff. But I love, I love Golden Corral. Where's it at? Where's it at in Mississippi? Over at Horn Lake. Oh, okay, cool. 
We don't, have, Horn Lake. we don't have a Golden Corral in Memphis, I don't think. I'm not sure. I don't ever come, I don't ever come up to Memphis anymore. I, I used to go to uh, uh, Britland's. Yeah, that's gone. Remember wow. Britland's? I remember I remember we were at uh, Mrs. Coffee's funeral years ago, and I and I said, uh, he said, why don't you take Mr. Coffee out to dinner sometime? And I said, yeah, Mr. Coffee, come on. I'll, I'll, take, I'll pick you up and take you to Four Flames. And you said, Jesus Christ, Bruno, how old are you? <laughs> I didn't. No, four flames wasn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah, the restaurant had been out of business for like fifteen years. I didn't know. You know, I don't ever come up to Memphis anymore. <laughs> four flames. You couldn't have yeah. afforded four flames in the back in the window was open. That was like the most expensive restaurant in the whole city. I know, that's why I said I'll take you to four flames. <laughs> you said, How the hell are <laughs> Yeah. Four flames. Well, and, you know what, Bruno Anderton's and it's sad that when you talk about like Mr. Coffee, Miss Coffee, and everything. How many great, you know, our great friends and people that we work with from Memphis are gone now, man. Sad, isn't it? I know. Thank God that we're still alive and kicking. Somehow we're still kicking, but not very high, right? <laughs> right. I always remember this. Everybody is listening, and I'll never, never waver on this. The man we're talking to, Jerry the King Lawler, his podcast. That's the fellow that gave me my life, and I owe him everything. He is the tree. I am just a branch. And without what the king did for me, I would have nothing. I'll never forget that. So the day I die. All right, Bruno, you said that just like I wrote it. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Bruno, I, you know what? I've told you a million times. Because Bruno, no matter who we're talking to or whatever, he always he always says that. But, I mean, I don't, I don't even look at it that way at all. I mean, I gave Bruno the – it's just like, you know, it's like a football game. I always say, you know, you give somebody the ball and then it's up to them to run with it. You can score a touchdown or you can fumble, you know. And at that point back in the 80s, I gave Bruno the ball and he, he took it and he ran with it for, for 35 years. And I'd scored many touchdowns. So, I mean, he's, uh, uh, I, I guess, yeah, you, you can say that I gave you the opportunity, but you did what you did on your own, man. You did. You've done. You've done. Well, great. I thank you. I thank you, and uh, I'll always be loyal to you till the day I die. Well, Bruno, have something good for me there in Golden Corral. I wish I was there eating lunch with you today. I wish we had one. I wish you were too. Thanks, Bruno. All right, I'll, I'll be in touch. Thanks, buddy. We'll be back in a moment on the Jerry Lawler Show. You're listening to The Jerry Lawler Show. Thanks for joining us. King, I have to ask you, before we get to Survivor Series and what's coming up in your life, the fact that you brought up football reminds me that the Browns and Steelers had like a Memphis brawl at the oh end of their God. game last week. Do you have any thoughts on uh, on that whole situation that went down? Well, do I, I almost felt responsible for it. <laughs> did you saw the tweet? Did you see the tweet that I sent out? Which one? You didn't see the tweet that I sent out the week before the Browns beat the Buffalo Bills, the week before they played the, the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. And right after that game, I, I sent out a tweet with a little gif of me – um, like in the ring doing the old wind up that I always do, you know, where I got to got my opponent by the head and I do the wind up my arm like your pitcher throwing the ball and then boom, throwing a big punch and the guy takes the bump and falls out and knock, knock him clear out of the ring, right? So I said, I sent out a tweet with that little picture on it saying, This is what I feel like after a Browns win. And it shows me bang, the big punch, right? And I tagged Miles Garrett in that tweet. Oh, no. 
And immediately after the game was over, just, I mean, within an hour after the, he finished that game uh, with, with the Bills, and I sent that tweet out, he, he commented on the tweet, and he said, you nailed it, King, or nailed it, King. <laughs> I don't know how right? I miss this. Usually I'm all over your Twitter. I miss this somehow. Yes. Oh, my gosh. you got to go back and look, for it, look at it because, oh, it's been retweeted thousands of times since that because, I mean, people, people that saw that, and then especially after he hits the guy with the helmet in the Pittsburgh game, uh, everybody went back and found that tweet that he commented on and said, nailed it, King. And they said, I mean, there were just all kind of comments from like, well, this is embarrassing or this didn't age well or, you know, this was like uh, one of those things. It, it, it was it was so prophetic in the fact that um, the only other better one that I saw after that was there was a somebody put out a, a little put out a tweet that had a gif of The Rock um, and Jr. and I do a commentary on it. But The Rock, somebody had uh, like The Rock's opponent. In a tag match, had uh, oh gosh, what was this? Who's the guy that says "damn" all the time? Ron Simmons. Um, Ron Simmons. Yeah, this is back when they were doing the. Yeah, he was Farouk back when they were doing the Nation of Domination. I can I couldn't even really tell, but I think it was the guy that used to do the um, karate stuff or whatever. Just still the, the MMA. What's his name? Blackman uh, Shamrock. Shamrock. Okay. I think it was Shamrock. And Shamrock's got this hold on Farouk. And all of a sudden, me and JR are doing the commentary. All of a sudden, The Rock comes in the ring from behind Shamrock, and he's got a metal folding chair. And he just hauls off and hits Farouk right in the middle of the head, just like a baseball bat, right? And you can hear the sound of it. And then I, I on commentary, I'm laughing at him going, <laughs> right? And it was, it was like a great treat. And somebody put that out, and it said something about – uh, Miles Miles Garrett in tr- a training session or something like that. <laughs> Suspended was, indefinitely. Uh, yeah, and I'm upset about. It. You know, as a matter of fact, as we uh, we are recording this right now, I gotta I gotta go on and check because he is actually in person there. He's he's appealing that uh, suspension today, and he went. He didn't just have uh, somebody go for him. He he's there meeting with the uh, probably with the commissioner or whatever. And he's appealing that today uh, himself in person. I don't. I don't think it'll do much good. He realizes he knows that t- that he really screwed up bad. But the sad thing about it is, the Pittsburgh quarterback, the you know Mason Rudolph, he initiated the whole thing. I mean, he he when he got sacked, he tried to pull Miles Garrett's helmet off. That started the whole thing. He twisted the helmet all the way around on Miles Garrett's head, and then as Miles Garrett was standing up, he kicked. They've got pictures of it. They're all over the place. He put his foot and kicked Miles Garrett in the groin. And then he, he took another swing at him before Miles Garrett hit him with a helmet, tried to hit him with a low blow. So, I mean, and then he comes out with absolutely nothing. I, th- I think now they have said they're going to find him something. But, you know, it's like, you know, there's no excuse. And Miles Garrett knows it. I mean, you can't, you just can't do what he did. And I really, I really hate it that it happened. But it's, it's, that's one of those things where anybody that gets, gets pushed to that point or anybody, if you and I, anybody out there, if you get in a fight with somebody and it's a, like a real fight and you got something in your hand, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a hammer or whatever, uh, or a glass or a beer bottle or something. You're going to hit the person with it. It just that just happens. That's just a human nature. A chain. And a chain, right, exactly. Unfortunately, he had the guy's helmet in his hand, and then he just kind of snapped, and, and, he, and he hit the guy. And, and I agree with everybody. 
There's no place for that in football. You can't do it. He knows that, and he's apologized. And it was just an unfortunate thing. It's really hurt. You know, I'm a lifelong Browns fan, and it really, it's going to hurt the team in the long run, and it's it's terrible publicity and all that sort of stuff. But uh, by the same token, I can I can relate to Miles Garrett on the thing, and I know him personally. He's not a bad guy. He's a good, great guy. It was just, you know, just an unfortunate lapse in, in judgment right there, you know. If, fortunately, Mason Rudolph wasn't hurt. He didn't hit him with the top part of the helmet, hit him with the bottom of the helmet, uh, so it didn't hurt Mason Rudolph at all. It's just the same. A shame. And and like you said, he's, he's suspended indefinitely, which uh, they've never done that before in the National Football League. They always put a – and I think that may be one of the things that comes out of today's appeal. They'll probably put a limit. Uh, they'll probably give a definite – amount of games that uh, Miles Garrett's going to be suspended for, which I, in, in my opinion, I don't know. I Just because I'm a fan, I would say just a few games. But I, I, if I were the NFL, I would just say, are you going to be suspended for the rest of the year? And then let everybody forget it during the off season. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it back again next year and suspending for part of the season next year too. You know, I think yeah. the best thing to do is try to put it all behind you. If you're going to suspend him that long, suspending for the rest of the season and then let's everybody get over it. You know, Baker Mayfield put it the best. I mean, that was a big, huge win for the Browns. Do you know, since the Browns have been back since 1999, they've never had a season where they beat both the Baltimore Ravens and the Pittsburgh Steelers. In the same year, I did not know that. Yeah, so that, I mean that was, should have been a huge win, and like Baker Mayfield said after that incident, they said it, it felt like a loss. But so anyway, yeah, let's uh, hopefully they'll they'll be able to pull themselves together. But I mean, you know, Miles Garrett was probably the best player, the best athlete on the Cleveland Browns team, and now they're going to lose him for the rest of the season. Well, it is an epic rivalry, and that was something out of Monday Night Raw. Uh, before we get <laughs> yeah. to uh, this weekend on Raw, you had a new uh, commentary partner this week with Samoa Joe. How'd you enjoy that? I really did enjoy it. Uh, Joe, uh, you know, Joe's been around a long time. He's a veteran. He knew exactly what he was doing out there. And and I thought we worked, um, at least from my opinion, Joe was really good to work off of, you know, I mean, he, I would set him up some on some uh, lines and he would set me up on some lines and it was a pleasure. I mean, you know, I, I hate, uh, I hate the fact that Dio Madden, I guess his, uh, you know, after he got put through that table, I don't know if it's health or future or whatever is, is sort of up in the air right now. And Vic or I, either one of us, nobody really even knew except like almost pretty much before the show. They came to us and said, uh, you know, Dio's, Dio's still not here uh, today and probably won't be back at Survivor Series either. So uh, we're going to put, you know, we're going to put Samoa Joe out there with you. And it's just the way it was, you know. And, and so, uh, but I thought it went as well as could be expected. Yeah. What do you think? I What'd thought you, you guys were great. I'm a, I'm a huge Samoa Joe fan going back to the, the glory days of Ring of Honor, circa like 2003, and have watched his whole career and so happy to see him getting this WWE platform after all these years. Of course, you know, he's got the, he's, his hand is broken and it's still in the cast. And so this, this may turn out really good for something for, to keep Joe out there in the eye of everybody until he's recovered and ready to get back in the ring. Yeah, I think he'd be excellent in that role. So um, we have four straight nights coming to Chicago, uh, my Man. hometown. I'm probably going to try to go to all four nights, which I've never done, really? I don't think, before. But why not? I love the All-State Arena. Survivor Series weekend. we got lots of excitement. 
And uh, we've got the whole Raw versus SmackDown versus NXT brand warfare going on. We've got Rey Mysterio trying to get revenge for his son against Brock Lesnar. We've got Daniel Bryan taking on The Fiend. Uh, big weekend coming up in Chicago. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, the it's so funny. The fans, I, I'm I'm sometimes get on the on the verge of just saying, man, I'm going to just get off off uh, social media or Twitter, Twitter especially. That's where everybody seems to do the most gripes and complaints and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's just so much negativity on these from a lot of these fans. And the and the funny thing is, it's like they must be watching, and I think they watch every minute of every show in order to be that critical. And I'm just, I just always think, why are you, you know, if you just don't like the product or you don't like something or you don't like a certain superstar that much, why do you even bother to, to watch it? And so I think it just comes down to they, they just watch so that they can be that critical. And I just, I just, you know, I just, I just hate that, that uh, some of the fans like the, you know, people are saying like, I, I think the NXT involvement is something that's, Going as going as well as it can be, I think it's been presented, uh, you know, very logically and and and. But you know, people they need to understand what's behind all this. Sometimes I think the fans forget, and I think the fans I don't know if they forget, or it's like they don't think that the people or the powers that be, the writers, the Vince McMahon, the Triple H, and all the. I think sometimes they don't. They, the fans don't think these people want the business to be good or they don't want the business to be successful. And that's the furthest thing from their mind. Every, everybody that works at the WWE, every single one of them, want every show, every match, every, uh, every one of the brands to be the best they can be. And, you know, it's, it's all of the, a lot of times the business decisions that are made, I guess maybe the fans don't stop to think about that. They don't think that far back about these things. I mean, but when you're on the inside, you can just look and see it so easy. I mean, you know, this, this, the NXT invasion is, is made now is, is being, is happening because all of a sudden NXT has gone from being developmental part of the developmental company or the, or the part of the company to bring up new wrestlers. It's, it's all of a sudden, since it's got its own show on USA network, like I said, they, the, now they want that show to be as successful as possible. So we have to suddenly make the NXT brand as important as SmackDown or raw because it's, it's, it's our own separate entity. It's its own separate show. So that's the, you know, that's the reason for this, this, and we're not supposed to say invasion. It's, it's a, it's a takeover. Right. And, and, and that's, that's the part of that. And that, and I think, I think that um, it's being done in a way that it's elevating the, the NXT talent to where they do are, are on the same playing field as SmackDown and Raw. And that's the way it has to be because, you know, they're, they're on USA just the same as Monday Night Raw. You know, they want that show to be successful for not only for WWE, but for USA Network. I mean, it's it's all a business and the people don't realize if a show is on the on the network and it gets horrible ratings and nobody watches, it ain't going to be on there very long. It's going to be, you know, they'll they'll find something to take its place. They're going to they're going to do whatever they can to make NXT have the best ratings possible. And and of course, there's the you know, there's the competition there with uh, AEW on another on another channel at the same time. So, you know, the, everything is uh, designed to 
make the business as good as it can be. And in that respect, it should be the best thing for the fans as well. Well, I've kind of pulled back from how much I participate in the online discussion to a degree just because it. Uh, there is a, just so much negativity, and you look at the show coming right. up. I mean, the two challengers for the titles are Daniel Bryan and Rey Mysterio. I can tell you, as a long time, you know, internet newsletter reading fan, like what what more can I ask for than Daniel Bryan and Rey Mysterio being in the two main events, and AJ Styles versus Shinsuke Nakamura versus Roderick Strong, and Adam Cole at a NXT title match. And, uh, exactly, this is like a dream match for the for the. Internet fans out there, I mean, a dream, a dream pay-per-view. This Survivor Series should be, uh, I mean, the, the people should be falling all over themselves about, like you said, the different matches that are on this uh, Survivor Series. And instead, I just, I just see negativity out there. Maybe it's the ones that the fans that uh, are being critical I think maybe that's just the small percentage of the fans that want to take the time to to make their voice heard and the, you know to, to to get out there. I think the the majority of the fans that are happy with it, they're just happy. That's they they get it for what it is. Hey, I'm a fan. I like watching this. I'm not going to go out of my way to go out on and go online and say, hey, this is great. I'm really looking forward to this or anything like that. They just take it for what it is. It's entertainment, sports entertainment. And, and we're going to be there every week giving you the best product that we can. But it's those, you know, those few negative uh, fans out there that just, I don't know, I think they, I really cannot get why somebody would be so negative about something that they obviously still watch. Yeah, I, I think the negativity is just overrepresented I, you know the the majority of people are going to be at the sold out all-state arena having a great time over the weekend and uh i'm really looking forward to this uh where else could we see jerry Lawler coming up here in uh, the near future well uh this weekend right before survivor series i'm going to be i'm not going to be i'm not going to be getting to chicago until sunday i'm going to be friday and saturday in louisville kentucky at the galaxy con one of the best uh, comic cons in the country i'm going to be there friday and saturday and of course that's my old stomping grounds i was in louisville every tuesday night the louisville gardens wrestling up there with with uh uswa and with memphis wrestling for years and years and years so it's always uh, great to be back in in louisville see a ton of our our great old louisville fans come up there and man Last year, it was one of the best Comic-Cons that I've been to. You know, I, I, I've told you many times, I love going to these Comic-Cons because I like seeing the, I like seeing all these other stars at these things. The Louisville Comic-Con last year had so many different TV and movie stars and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, they got a real great lineup again this year. And I, I'm, I'm always looking forward to that. I'm, I'm as, I'm, I go as much of uh, being a fan as I do being a part of the, uh, you know, part of the Comic-Con. Sounds good. Maybe I can buy you lunch this weekend. Yeah, man, we'll we'll do that. Saturday we'll be there Saturday or Sunday and uh, Monday. We'll we'll do that. I'll bring you down to catering and let you have lunch down in catering oh, and catering and see all the. Heard about the, the infamous catering in WW. It sounds delicious. <laughs> it is awesome. It really is. Yeah, we'll do we'll do that Sunday or Monday. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. You know, as the King said at the start of the show, please feel free to tweet at us or, or, or comment on Facebook or Instagram. We love hearing from you. What you want to hear from the show? What you like and don't like. And uh, I think that'll do it for this week. Well, all right, man. Uh, we'll see you back here again next week, okay? We will have a recap of Survivor Series next week and uh, most likely a guest. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody.
Monday night is podcast night for the Los Angeles Lakers. What's happening, everybody? This is the official Lakers podcast. I'm your host, Mike Trudell. Super pumped to be here, flanked by Aaron Larsoul. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's, Let's get, get it. it. I think the Lakers will be a top 10 defense. Okay, now. you're calling your shot again. A team that has two stars or two superstars in this case, as LeBron and AD, can sometimes cancel each other out. But I think they're both good candidates for MVP. I really like the way that this team just feels to be around. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, it's a it's a very clear message. It's two stars and LeBron and AD, and it's everybody else that's on board. The relationship that is developing between those two, off the court and on the court, their cohesiveness on the court. I think in this case, this is a special case that the two of them will enhance each other as opposed to taking away from each other. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Long time.